0: Um, so, once again, we are here
1: with uh, Aaron Brailsford from F5 Cert, and we're here to talk about the month in security. So, Aaron, welcome. How you doing today?
0: Hey, I'm good. Thanks for having me back, Aubrey. Oh, It's
1: great to have you back. Uh, always glad to have you. So, can you, before we kind of get into the, the latest news, can you tell me a little bit uh, about what it is you do for F5 and what SIRT
0: does? Absolutely. So, so my team does two things um, outside of education, like this week in security and, and Dev Central posts. We look after vulnerability response for all F5 products. So we handle um, disclosure of, of vulnerabilities in F5 code and in third-party code that we consume, um, and we also help out customers who come come under attack. So, any customer who's suffering from some kind of security emergency can just phone into the support organization. If they say they're under attack, that kicks off a process within F5 that pulls the SIRT into that engagement. And we will do basically anything we can to stop the bleeding, get customers back up and running, uh, provide advice on on how they might want to handle an incident, um, and then join them up with um, their account teams if there are products that might better suit them in the long term.
1: Fantastic. That's uh, actually very timely information for most of our customers, of course, coming up on uh, August 3rd. If you don't know, we do have our quarterly security notifications coming out, uh, which is an agreed scheduling for us to release our CVEs. So definitely keep cert in mind if there are any CVEs which are impacting you and which you need help mitigating. Now, with that kind of out there, I guess if we could jump into the news, Aaron, what do you got for me?
0: Yeah, exactly. So, over the last month, there's been a lot going on in the InfoSec world, as there always is, um, and I thought I'd pull out just a, a few things that we talked about in the This Week in Security articles, a few things that were interesting or stood out to me, um, back around June 6 ish there were two new processor vulnerabilities that were disclosed one was called Hertz bleed and the other was called retbleed bleed um, I thought they were they were interesting to talk about right there are are another in a long line of processor vulnerabilities that started really with spectrum meltdown right a few years ago um, if you remember those
1: I don't actually
0: there's a whole class of processor vulnerabilities that are Kind of interesting, um, Spectrum Meltdown were the first and they they deal with um, side channels that you can create to like, leak information out of what should be protected areas of memory um, using things called speculative execution. It's a technique that modern processors use to be able to predict what branches, a, need to be executed in code, right? In code, you always have lots of conditional branching happening. Um, modern processors don't really start at the top of a program and just execute every instruction in sequence, right? That's that's how processors worked in the 80s and 90s um, until sort of the Pentium, at least in x86, until the Pentium came along. Um, from that point in time, they started to... Like Batch instructions up and try and basically race the processor ahead of where the program is, if you like. So you're always trying to execute as much as you can in parallel and as far ahead as you can in the program. Sometimes that means you're operating on either information that you might not actually have yet or branches where you don't actually know which branch you should take. Processors use a variety of techniques to try and predict what the information is they should be working on, essentially the outcome of a calculation before you've done the calculation um or what branches they might have to take in code that's what gives us a massive speed boost in modern processes over older processes, okay but it it comes with some penalties. <laughs> um, if you can trick a processor into taking a branch that it might not otherwise have taken, you can cause it to leak some information. And that was that was what Spectrum and Meltdown were all about. And people have been building off that research ever since. There's been uh, I, I couldn't even tell you how many different processor vulnerabilities have have come out since then. And these were the last two so Hertzbleed was um a little different in the the side channel here is basically how fast the processor is running the clock speed so most modern processors i would go as far as to say all but at least intel amd and arm will scale their clock speeds up and down depending on what the workload is they're working on Right. If they're idle, they can scale the clock speed right back to save power. And if they're running flat out, um, many of them, all of the current Intel and, R and AMD processors support like a turbo boost speed. Right. So they'll they'll overclock themselves up when they're running flat out. Okay. Um, and the researchers for Hertzbleed discovered that if you could make the processor run on known workloads, essentially you could make it scale its processor speed up and down measure how long it took for your workloads to happen and from that infer what data it was operating on they used that to leak uh, private keys that should otherwise not have been recoverable wow and this sounds yeah it, it sounds really bad right and and when we had Spectrum meltdown, there was a ton of panic around processor vulnerabilities and CPU vulnerabilities, because because what do you do about that, right? It's the core of the computer. If that's vulnerable, then all bets are off, right?
1: Yeah, I would think that any programming interface would have the ability to impact that, or language for that matter.
0: Exactly. It's it's the, the core of everything is vulnerable to something. Um the reality is, and I talked about this in, in This Week in Security because this was the one that I wrote. The reality is that in most situations, you probably are not impacted enough for this to be a significant consideration. There are Certainly for Hertzbleed, um, there are far, far easier ways that an adversary would look to compromise a system than using this Um, so while the researchers showed that theoretically this is exploitable across the internet there was a whole slew of of things that they needed to do first like you needed a, a vulnerable piece of um code that you can run sorry that you can run on the target device so you've already achieved some kind of compromise and really the most impacted environments here are likely to be cloud providers or virtual infrastructure where you have a single cpu shared across a number of systems but if you're not running untrusted workloads and realistically even if you are if you take the example of a big ip that could be servicing thousands tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of concurrent users trying to to observe any kind of timing change based on the input. You're relying on the timing changes being specific to your input, but if there's a couple of hundred thousand people concurrently using the service, the likelihood is that will have a bigger impact on the timing changes. So the chances of that being exploitable in the real world, I would hesitate to say slim to none, but I think most of us have uh, more important things to worry about. These are, these are great pieces of research, and, and I'm glad people are doing them, and they shouldn't stop because it informs future process, processor design. But in at least in my view, they are more academic exercises than anything
1: else. So are these exploits things that um, processors in some of our systems could be impacted by, or is this something that we might have to look out for in uh, virtual editions,
0: something like that? So both of those are true. Um, Hertz bleed affects basically every Intel and, and AMD processor that's on the market today, a large number of ARM ones. Um, there are workarounds available. And the workaround for Hertz bleed at least is you disable frequency scaling. If you lock the processor at its, its regular frequency, Right, so not scaled down and not in turbo boost, then you lose that side channel completely. You can't influence its clock speed in any way, so everything will always take the same amount of time to compute regardless of the workload. Uh, the cost there obviously is in power consumption because you will always have the regular amount of power consumption, it can never scale itself back. And you lose that turbo boost. So if you were relying on that extra capacity to keep your infrastructure in running, you would lose that. Um, for big IP hardware platforms, we don't recommend any of the workarounds, and I don't believe we support the workarounds, because the exposure of this is so theoretical and limited, the workaround. The cost of the workaround vastly outweighs the risk of the vulnerability existing. And in shared infrastructure, so for virtual machines or cloud instances, it's up to the people administering that shared infrastructure, right? You could put the workarounds in place. Personally, I think the cost outweighs the benefits.
1: So, uh, just a curiosity for me personally, uh, as I hear you talk about this, I'm wondering whether or not um, specialized coprocessors like QAT would also be vulnerable to these, or if that sort of, or if maybe, uh, you know, offloaded workloads might be a little less uh, impacted by these vulnerabilities.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. So certainly in an environment like the big IP, um, in a big IP with say a crypto card, right? A lot of the cryptographic operations, which is specifically what the Hertz researchers were looking at is handled in a hardware system. Yeah. which should have fixed timings, right? That's, I mean, that as a vulnerability in crypt- cryptography has been long known about, right? Everything needs to be timing, like predictable. Um, so yeah, your risk is greatly diminished. In terms of virtual editions, you could be using a, a net HSM, say, for to, for some of the crypto operations, uh, but you'll probably be CPU bound for everything else. Um, there isn't much research into that angle, I don't think.
1: Yeah, that, that would be interesting uh, if there were. Of course, you know, we we at F5 tend to believe in uh, offloading your SSL, so. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, um, anything else about the uh, these couple of processor vulnerabilities?
0: Yeah, but one other thing I would mention, there was uh, another vulnerability came up, which is called Pac-Man. It's another vulnerability with a shiny name and logo. It's another processor vulnerability this one was interesting and, and I think unique because it affects the new Mac M1 processor. Um all of the research I've seen to date has been X86, right? So Intel and, and AMD Um or ARM, a classic ARM. I know M1 Mac has its roots in ARM. This I won't talk about at length, but for me falls into much the same bucket as as Hertz bleed. It you know, Is it exploitable in the real world? Yes, probably. Do I think attackers are actually going to exploit this in the real world? No, probably not. You needed a vulnerable kernel module to already be loaded on the target system, so the researchers wrote their own and in the real world that's not going to exist right you've also got to find a piece of pre-existing vulnerable kernel code to exploit does that mean that it doesn't exist no it could well do and you know if if there was a kind of attacker that I thought would use this um attack surface it would be nation states your regular run of the mill attacker is going to deliver you a piece of malware in some other way right like a drive by download or a phishing attack it's always phishing <laughs> Um, they're not going to go looking for processor vulnerabilities, that, but they also have to find a vulnerable kernel module first.
1: Well, it's like you said, there are easier ways to skin that cat for the average hacker.
0: Very much so. Um, and that that kind of leads me on to the next thing that, that stood out to me over the last month. We talked a lot about esoteric processor vulnerabilities just now, but most often attacks are carried out against the human targets, right? So, phishing or stolen credentials and there was a a piece that um megazone put in his this week in security which was that there are now 24 billion username and password combinations floating around on the dark it's just a a staggering number it's a staggering amount of, of personal information usernames and passwords available for purchase and use right we also saw research um around the June 27th issue of This Week in Security about how you could leak uh, access tokens from Amazon Photos. It's quite a a specific attack, but they they kind of interleave together. They really come back to two things for me, which is why second factor auth is so hugely important. And the fact that we see, we we continue to see, and, and I think we will continue to see, an enormous amount of brute force and credential stuffing attacks against targets. That's, you know, something we help customers with with a lot. We have great products to help with that and because it comes up so often.
1: Now, is is there anything that you guys are seeing uh, with big IPs or with, with F5 customers today uh, where they are impacted by these specific, well, I mean, obviously, our customers are going to be impacted by the the 24 billion usernames and passwords but uh the the amazon uh exploit specifically is that something that we've seen uh insert with our customers or is that just more general
0: yeah no that one is is more theoretical i think i mean it it is a risk and it was proven but it's not something that we've seen um what we have seen i think is a swing from brute force attacks against form-based authentication, right? Your your typical website that's aimed at, you know, an end user in a browser to attacks against API endpoints being the predominant vector, Um, often mobile application endpoints. And I think attackers choose that because they're a more difficult thing to protect. Obviously, obviously, some of the technologies that you would classically rely on to protect form-based auth, so um, insertion of JavaScript, looking to see whether the user is a real human, right? With either captures or um, advanced WAF has had this for a number of years, like the human user interaction JavaScript that looks for things like mouse movements and patterns of typing on keyboard, that kind of stuff. All of that goes out of the window when it's an API endpoint that a mobile app is using. We do have great solutions for that in F5, right? We have uh, mobile SDKs as, as part of distributed cloud shape, shape yeah. um, that you can deploy, yep. And, and those are brilliant. And we continue to get calls from people who have not deployed that kind of technology yet who need to protect themselves against these attacks.
1: You know, it, it's funny. One of the I spent a little bit of time on the distributed cloud team. And one of those things that we... Um, that we would see every now and again would be, um, you know, someone who needed to get that sort of protection up fast because they knew that they were under attack, uh, but they didn't know how to patch that hole quick. You know, I mean, when you're in a a, a big organization, you have to go through the procurement process. And uh, many times, you know, there aren't a lot of vice presidents and, and, such that want to okay spending on products that are untested in the environment, and whatnot. So, um, it was nice for us to be able to say, "Hey, well, we've got these proven technologies. We've got the same WAF engine that's in a WAF. A lot of our customers are already used to that, and we've got Shape that's available to us on the distributed cloud. We can put up a, a you know uh, an AnyCast VIP in two minutes and defend you from all of that." Um, it, it is it is comfortable to be able to talk to customers, especially in financial services markets. I found when you have a, a fixer that's that quick.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's brilliant being able to spin something like that yeah. up quickly. Um, and one of the things we end up doing a lot in in the cert with customers who are under attack is getting them a, a stopgap, right? Because because quickly still involves some discussion, generally yeah. speaking. We'll often be working with people just looking at the requests to look for things we can key off to differentiate valid from invalid um and then deploying usually i rules that are looking for something quite specific knowing full well that this is a game of whack-a-mole we are entering into yeah. right but it's a game of whack-a-mole that should end when something like shape has been actually integrated and spun up so you can you can live with that pain for a, a deter- like a short period of time yeah we we run into that uh, an awful lot. (laughs) So it would
1: appear that, you know, we're seeing more and more these days of credential stuffing attacks uh, and a whole lot of stolen credentials, as you mentioned with all those millions of usernames and passwords out there. What is kind of the the best recommendation for defense out there right now?
0: Uh, it's It's a good question. And alongside deploying something like shapes, mobile SDK, if you've got mobile apps, advanced WAFs, human user detection, if you've got, you know, regular form-based login, a second factor of authentication, right? If you haven't deployed 2FA or MFA, in, in some form, everywhere should have it. Um, even text messaging, right? We know that there are risks associated with SMS as a second factor, because there's the risk of SIM swap attacks, which that risk varies wildly depending on geography. Yeah. So where I am in the UK, sim swapping is considerably harder, as I found to my cost when I legitimately needed to sim swap um, and had to jump through a whole bunch of hoops.
1: Yeah, and I'm I'm assuming you saw how Malibot handled the multi-factor authentication as well. That was pretty exciting. I mean, to be able to take control of the end user device is pretty powerful stuff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There is, it's Nothing is infallible. And... To defeat 2FA, then since it's mostly done through mobile phones, right? None of us carry RSA tokens around <laughs> what? anymore. I have a collection. <laughs> um, I had one until, I was going to say, I, I did have one until recently. Um, some of the banks in the UK, um, I don't know if you have these in the US, they use a device called PIN Sentry. So it's like a, a, a tiny, looks like a desktop calculator, but you put your debit card into it and it interfaces with the chip on the card, right? That's to give you an RSA-like sort of number. That obviously can't be controlled by malware like Malibot because it's a physical device that is not connected to the internet. You could still fish for the second factor, right? You could still, and this is a common thing, phone people up, pretend to be the bank, ask someone to use their pin sentry device and, you know, um attack it that way the possibilities but are endless right it's infinitely better exactly exactly the the people sitting at the end of the keyboard or the telephone are always the easiest thing to attack and they are always fallible we That's are right. all human um, and to air is human as they say so everything can be defeated but a second factor of authentication it should be on every single login form and functionality everywhere at this point. It's well, you know,
1: you said everything can be defeated. One of those things that seems to have been defeated recently has been the global supply chain, right? <laughs> so my understanding is you guys have uh, have got some intriguing updates there as well.
0: Yeah, so actually in the most recent this week in security, um, one of my colleagues, Kyle, talked about the hardware supply chain and how that's being being disrupted right now. Some components are just ridiculously hard to get hold of, and, and that affects everybody, right? It affects us just as much as it affects other companies. And F5, we've been working hard to try and design out those constraints, right? We leverage our buying power where we can, and, and like everybody else, if we can redesign hardware to remove the problematic component, then we will. That's probably easier in the circumstances Carl was talking about, which is badges for Defcon, because these are, you know, this is essentially guerrilla development, right? These are small teams of, of rapidly developing um, hardware, unlike F5, where we're much bigger and we have much longer lead times on our development cycles. But we can apply the same principles. The hardware supply chain is something we don't talk about often, but it's very important. More oftenly, we're talking about software supply chain. And I seem to end up talking about this every time I write This Week in Security, almost as often as I talk about weird process of vulnerabilities. Um, so back in early June, I wrote about QNAP NASes. Um, were targeted, they've been targeted a number of times, but they were targeted most recently by a couple of specific kinds of malware that look to encrypt and lock away your files. Um, And it was, nobody was sure how that malware was delivered. But to me, it seemed really suspiciously coincidental that very soon after that, a number of days after that was disclosed or started happening, they disclosed um, their vulnerability to and published fixes for a PHP CVE from 2019. So the likelihood is this is an old vulnerability that's been lurking in their software supply chain for a couple of years, three years now. And people who had their QNAPs exposed to the Internet, because they did like cloud publishing of files and stuff, were getting popped through this thing that had been just sitting there lurking. That is a problem for everybody. Again, it's something that impacts F5 as well, and something that that all vendors are putting a good deal of money and time into trying to solve. There was the whole software bill of materials um, mandated by the executive order recently in the US, and I think that's gonna drive a lot of positive change. It, it's not just a problem that's unique to your software products if you're a vendor. Right as a consumer, you have a supply chain that includes your vendors, and actually trying to manage that for for consumers is very very difficult. Um, we can look at Atlassian, who had um, a CVE that in early June had mass exploitation. They were subject to a, a CISA warning in the US to immediately patch, you know, any affected infrastructure. Um, we, we just talked about that on Dev Central Connects
1: yesterday, Boo and I did. Um, they had another couple of vulnerabilities that were released. I saw, um, you know, one in questions. It seems like, um, you know, that, that had a, a hard-coded password even. I mean, I haven't seen that kind of thing in a while. But, uh, you know, for a one-off account, I guess maybe it makes sense. But to have that as a default and active on a, I don't know. It's To me, that whole idea spoke to, boy, it it must be nice to have, you know, cloud, you know, uh, cloud SaaS components to your infrastructure these days, you know,
0: rather than on-prem. That that was a scary one for me. Yeah, that, that hard-coded username. I was about to say I'm going to pick on them again because I was going to bring that up exactly. That That's a, a howler. Um, I mean, you know, no, none of us are perfect, right? And that's probably something that, you know... A, if we're being generous here, a junior developer maybe <laughs> did, didn't think about the consequences, was missed in a threat model assessment, and it wound up in a product. I mean it's yeah.
1: It's- it reminded me, and I you know, I have to bring this one up, uh, of, of when I was a, a junior admin actually way back in like two thousand one, two thousand two, we had a virtual mail appliance that came with a root password blanked out. And that was exposed on the management interface. <laughs> so, like, oh, my gosh. I mean, and, and you could just, we exploited it in front of the vendor at one point. We said, look, just watch, shared a screen and said, here we go. We, you know, SSH to the, the, uh, you know, to the management interface, typed in root, hit enter, and then password, hit enter. On, full access. Like, what? And it was, a—I mean, this was a, a mail platform that, it was
0: scary to know how many people actually use that thing too. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll hold our hand up and say that, that we're not perfect and we haven't been perfect in the past. It's not until relatively recently that we mandated changing the root and admin user passwords on a big IP. Right. And that, that historically has caught a good number of people out. Um, (laughs) Thankfully that's changed and we force. You know, a password being changed and, and I think in the latest versions, we enforce some kind of a password policy by yeah. default, which is also nice, incredibly frustrating in a lab environment, but much better in a production environment. Um, uh, but yeah, that, that kind of, those kind of gotchas, I mean, they will continue to, to crop up from time to time. We Everybody is fallible, like we've said a number of times so far. All humans. Yeah, exactly exactly the the most the most frightening part of the supply chain problem in terms of security for me in rather than in terms of simply being able to procure hardware in the first place um and the difficulties of of actually understanding the the threat landscape in a product which is a huge problem the most worrying part for me is is what if Hardware you buy oh, come oh, yeah. pre-compromised. Yeah. This just this week, um, I think it was this week, Kaspersky and an ex Kaspersky employee published um, a bunch of research around a, a UFE or UEFI rootkit. Um, and the bit that jumped out to me in in that research, I'm sure we can, we can include a link to it in the video description. But the the bit that jumped out to me was that this. Relatively complex um, rootkit that was well thought out and seemed to be, you know, well appointed in terms of features and functionality. Nobody's determined how it gets on there in the first place, right? It's essentially a it's a hardware level rootkit, right? That's infecting the UA- UAFI bootloader. Um, it seems to have always been found on one of two makes of motherboard. Jeez. with one chipset now we've had panic and speculation previously right about a particular chipset manufacturer or a particular board manufacturer having been compromised at source and and i don't want to try uh, you know i don't want to kick off that kind of speculation but there's, there's something common with with what they've found there and if if you can't find you know maybe it's just that we haven't yet found how it got on there but it seems suspicious to me I'll, You know, it's funny, hardware exploits
1: in general are are something I think that, um, you know, your average security folks don't tend to think about. My last interaction with CERT and one of my customers while I was still in sales, we were looking at a a customer's big IP that had been compromised uh, by a particularly nasty CVE. um, And while we were digging through it, we saw a component in, this, uh, in, in the kit, we were able to find uh, an, an egg drop bot that was sitting there and that was utilized uh, in the compromise. Uh, and in that kit, we saw something that CERT believed was being used to try to hard write code onto the, the crypto chip of the big IP in specific, so that even if you rebooted it, as soon as the crypto chip came back up, it would reinfect the big IP to be able to use it for uh, for crypto mining. So ultimately, yeah. uh, the cert recommendation at that time was to send the big IP back, and we issued an RMA, uh, and and the customer had a had a new system. So that that was the first time I really had had to think about it and went, oh my gosh, that that's a persistent threat, you know.
0: Yeah, that's that's uh, an interesting one, and it's the big IPs have. One or more FPGAs in in almost all of the models now, if not all of them, and those FPGAs have code which can be um, updated because yep. they're flash programmable <laughs> gate arrays, right? Um, and we put a lot of protections in. Yeah, we put a lot of protections into that that process to ensure that we're only writing, you know, known code that checksums out okay. Um, the boxes have a health check when they boot. But there is always the possibility of, you know, if you can get something in like a root kit that could then manipulate those health checks, right? It's how do you, if you know a device has been potentially compromised, proving that you're at a known good state is remarkably difficult. And for that reason, we build, you know, like I say, a ton of protections into the processes that that flash the FPGAs, the processes that validate them, to make sure that they can't be compromised in the first instance, or to try to. I'm pretty sure I remember the incident you you you're talking about there, and that was the first and and I think only time we've seen that, which is good because (laughs) hopefully it means that you know the risk is small. And off the back of that, we, we made, you know, code changes and and procedural changes to limit the risk further. But yeah, if your hardware gets popped, if you take the UFE bootloader, if the bootloader gets popped, let's say it's a Windows laptop, none of Windows is. Protection mechanisms are going to function here because you're in before any of those instantiate.
1: You know, it, it makes me wonder how the the Open Programmable Interface project will impact some of the ability for this kind of you know hardware threat to persist. I wonder if it will make it easier to sort out, or whether it will make it kind of more common. I think we assumed that with Linux, for instance, in terms of OSs, that it would uh, it would be harder uh to you know to have exploits because everyone has eyes on that code um but there's so much code you know so it's like <laughs> so much code out there so yeah. um, maybe it's it's it, it's also easier to put in
0: something esoteric that maybe missed oh yeah it's it's so i've will digress a little bit into this i guess but two things that 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 spring to mind there one is that a lot of the security around commercial products, not so much ads, we're pretty open about, uh, about our security posture, but certainly if you take Intel with some of their lights out management stuff that's on processors, security through obscurity is what ruled there, right? It, it wasn't, we didn't believe it was exploited because nobody either knew it existed or how it operated, and it had to be reverse engineered before people could find the problems that would demonstrate the exploits. There's also the assumption, like you say, that if everybody's got eyes on the code, then vulnerabilities couldn't possibly exist because someone will spot them. I know there's been some research papers into whether that really pans out or whether actually what you have is a whole load of very big projects with very small numbers of active contributors, people who are actually looking at the code. And mostly what you've got is people who are just blindly consuming it because, how can you possibly audit 300 million lines of code as a not, consumer? Not at all. Well, I'm sure we could go on
1: forever about uh, <laughs> about this, but we have nothing left to talk about next month. I so, so I guess um, if unless you have any other parting thoughts, Aaron, I figure we could wrap for the month. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we'll do
0: it again next month.
1: I look forward to it. Well, let's keep in touch. And then we will definitely make sure that we keep our community up to date on the month in security.
0: Thanks for tuning in. I'm Aubrey King from Dev Central.